Hey, this is Adrian Hernandez, and welcome to the NIH Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. We're here to give you some extra time with our speaker and ask some of the tough and interesting questions you want to hear most. If you haven't already, we hope you'll watch the full Grand Rounds webinar recording to learn more. All of our Grand Rounds content can be found at rethinkingclinicaltrials.org. Thanks for joining. Hi, I'm Adrian Hernandez. I want to host for Collaboratory Grand Rounds, and today we're here with Mike Gibson, who is going to reflect on the Heartline trial, a new paradigm on conducting virtual clinical trials. He recently gave a Grand Rounds on this really important topic, but also an important trial in terms of really changing how clinical trials uh, can and should be done. So, Mike, uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Adrian. Give us a little bit of history of how you got here to the Heartline trial. I'm sure it was not an overnight email saying, like, hey, we should do this. Yeah, it certainly wasn't. Well, it's really the culmination of 35 years of doing the trials we've been doing, you know, but they cost a billion dollars or $1.2 billion if you want to ask a question. And we just can't keep doing that. I mean, it's not sustainable. So we've got to come up with new models. I think, you know, this study was done at 1% of that cost. So if, you know, we can get trials down to 1% of what we were paying before, could we have more shots on goal? Could we advance more therapies? Could we really improve public health by having many more things tested and succeeding? So that was really the motivation. You know, how can we reallocate resources away from the expense of trials? What we've also seen is that patients are becoming more empowered. They don't want to walk into a doctor's office and be patronized. They want a seat at the table. They want to be an equal in a conversation and obviously, the other thing that's happened over those 35 years is that we have a lot of new technologies, the internet, apps. So everything kind of converges with, you know, patients being more empowered, being able to and willing to, and let me underscore that, willing to use these new technologies. So it was kind of a perfect storm of changing things in trials. Yeah, well, I just love like the idea of 100x. I mean, just imagine the number of questions that could be addressed if we can literally go 100x faster and more economically. You started this pre-pandemic, and then this pandemic rolls in. How did that affect things? Well, we don't know what we don't know. We don't know what would have happened had the pandemic not have come in. We had much higher aspirations in terms of enrollment. We thought we'd probably enroll 150,000 patients. We came up far, far short of that. We came up with 32,000 patients that got enrolled and randomized. Just to be clear, 32,000 does not seem like a typical short goal. Out of 150,000, I can understand that, but 32,000 is like several times larger than what we typically see. It is. You know, we had seen with the original Apple Heart study that they got 450,000 enrolled, and we said, well, we're going after older people. Let's cut back on that down to 150,000. So we thought we might be able to get something close to that. We felt like with 50,000 patients, we'd be pretty well powered for like really hard things like even mortality. We thought we might do it, but the pandemic really changed things. At first, people, when they got randomized, if they got randomized to an Apple Watch, they were originally going to go in a store and get the watch. That obviously couldn't happen. So we had to redo everything so they'd get the watch mailed to their home. What we learned was, you know, how do you enroll people in a virtual trial just to get those 32,000 patients? We had to go out and generate 380 million impressions, whether it's electronic or print, 
to get there. So this is a whole new way of finding patients. You know, it's not the old doctor sees the patient and enrolls them. That could have happened. This is direct to patient enrollment. It was fascinating. You know, we would do A versus B testing and sending out emails, what color background works, an orange background with white letters. Go figure. What's it say in the subject line? You know, A, B, C testing to see what works best in subject lines. So we learned a lot about how you get people in. It was a lot tougher than we thought it would be. Obviously, not all trials or not all questions are going to be answered by a direct-to-patient approach. This is a very select kind of study. But many of the tools that we've been working on could be applied to almost any trial. I think the idea of having one IRB, the idea of having one app where you get randomized, where you can read about the study, you can watch videos about the study, and you have you know some of the world's best communicators communicating in clear language about you know what's going to go on in the study and the benefits and risks. I think that's a reusable lesson or learning from the study, how to do that. We also learned a lot, you know, there are about 14 steps before you got randomized. And, you know, we would like a, a consort diagram. We would watch where people fell off. Throughout the course of study, we optimized each of those steps to you know, maximize the number of people who made it through the consent process. So I think there are a lot of learnings there. One of the learnings was a really good one. We thought, boy, we're enrolling these elderly people over 65. I got to tell you, I thought there's just no way they're going to interact with this app. And, you know, what's interesting is when they did the original app heart study, they had about 30% engagement on the app. We had over 90%, about 90% engagement by these people. That was the most surprising thing. Maybe they had nothing to do uh, during the pandemic but interact with this app at home. That number stayed up pretty high. I mean, it dropped down a bit over time, you know, maybe down to 80%. But still, I'm still dumbfounded that we had that many people remain engaged. What were some of the secrets to that? I think one of the learnings there were... People wanted more than just the study. They wanted a gateway or portal into like medical and health news. So you know me, Adrian, I, I love doing the newsy stuff. I don't just do cardiology. You know, I talk about all different types of topics. They like that kind of general health news, not the like red wine is good for you or chocolate <laughs> this week is good for you. But, you know, verifiable, credible news about, you know, what they can be doing to improve their health. The other thing that we have, you know, are all these these little tests like how often are you standing? How often are you moving around? And they were getting feedback about their activities and stuff. That seemed to be popular too. Finally, I'm just blown away by this. You can't imagine how many questions we ask these people. A lot about mental health, anxiety, depression, sleep, diet, it wasn't just cardiology. It was Avogadro's number of questions about general health. And, you know, during the pandemic, we've had some lessons that, you know, it's usually the youngerly out of that group that got more anxious than the very, very elderly during the pandemic. And the anxiety and depression peaked at the peak of the pandemic, but then came down. But there was some lingering anxiety among the youngerly. When we planned the study, we didn't plan around a pandemic, but we were able to do some interesting research, you know, just from all the questions we were asking them. Yes, of course, the Apple Watch questions, and we detect AFib. Okay, that, that's an interesting cardiology question. But when we're on our calls, 
I would say 90% of the questions we want to ask are from all these EPRO questions, these patient-reported outcomes in, in their general health. And I'm sure there's going to be a nexus between sleep, sleep apnea, exercise, the psychosocial aspect of everything. So, you know, when we do these trials, we don't get into all that stuff. So for me, it's actually pretty exciting to have all those questions. I love the idea of the 24-hour health solution. Put a little more framing about the number of impressions. You know, for most people, they're not as in tune as you are in terms of, you know, what it takes for impressions. It sounds like a, an enormous number. What are typical numbers get generated for tweet or something else? It seems just a different scale. It is a whole different scale. Yeah, Twitter is one thing. Facebook is another thing. There's also the kinds of advertising you do. You know, we did a lot of segments on local, national TV, a lot of work going to AARP to get their buy-in, a lot of work with insurers. What's fascinating is there is a whole area of market research on Facebook. And I, I think we're all starting to learn about this, right? So, you know, you can say to Facebook, I want to reach people over 65 with all these other characteristics. And you pay to get your message in front of those people. Those are called impressions. If you, you blast it out to a million people, that's a million impressions. So what you do is you do a lot of A versus B testing. You know, we see that we got more positive feedback when we went with an orange background with the white lettering with these kinds of verbiage and these kinds of pictures. And we see that we got a greater response from this demographic. So we need to keep going after that demographic. So it's fascinating. I mean, it's just, I know I'm supposed to be a scientist and everything, and I am. But it was just fascinating to learn about the, the science of how you reach people. But the single biggest way we reach people was through emails and email lists. Again, there was a lot of A versus B testing to find out the best way to get the most opens and then the most people to click on that button to enroll. Wow. Okay, that's terrific. As you kind of think of the future and seeing these types of platforms and trials going forward, anything you see as barriers, like regulatory barriers that uh, need to be overcome or other barriers? Well, this is the first, really, time this is being done. I think we'll see where the weak points were, where the strong points were. Not every trial is going to be a virtual trial. But, you know, I do think the take-homes we talked about earlier are probably going to be durable lessons. There's a lot of things that we still need work on, like SAE reporting from trials. Could we take more of that unstructured data and make it structured data? Can we do more in the way of follow-up virtually rather than having people come in for visits? I think we can show that that's probably very feasible. I think, you know, after this, you may see more and more of a hybrid model emerging which I think would be great because, you know, if we can get everyone on the same page on the consent form and the consent process, if we could come up with smart monitoring using these devices, 40% of cost of trials is in the monitoring. If we can cut that down with virtual monitoring, at least, uh, I think that'd be good. You know, you and I have worked in a world where we have done trials where we are very rigorous in data collection. That's different than the UK model. The Oxford model is, you know, enroll Avogadro's number of patients and all the noise will come out, uh, you know, in the end and you'll be able to answer the question definitively. I think we got to think about that. There are some advantages to having much more patient enrollment 
maybe with not as much data, where we can get the answers, you know, in broader numbers of people. I think people like you and I need to think about that and regulators need to think about that as well. Absolutely. Especially if you want to get to this goal that you outline of getting to 100x. We have a, a good friend who always uh, notes, make sure to do things that are interesting, innovative, impactful, and fun. Bob Harrington always reminds us of doing that. And Mike, what you all did here hits all four of those. Thanks for sharing your insight. And also, I look forward to um, seeing many more of these trials going forward. So, Mike, thanks for your leadership and continue to move things forward. It's always fun to uh, work with all my friends at Duke and with you, Adrian. Always have such fond memories. I was there, a faculty for a few years, coming down and working with you guys. Always great to work with the family there. Yep, we're all family. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Join us for our next podcast as we continue to highlight uh, fascinating and formal changes in the research world. Thanks for joining today's NIH Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. Let us know what you think by rating this interview on our website. And we hope to see you again on our next Grand Rounds, Fridays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Thank you.